3: To start planning your trip, visit TNVacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect.
2: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And for our second Halloween-themed episode of this year, we are going to, rather than talking about the supernatural... Talk about scary things in the real world, which to me are much scarier.
0: Well, yeah, because they can actually jump out and get you. Exactly. Well, I guess racist
3: costumes could jump out and get you too, but. Yes, but we're going to talk about women in true crime and specifically why women are so drawn to this genre. And this first caught my eye with a Time Magazine article uh, in September about. The meteoric rise of investigation discovery, which full disclosure, investigation discovery is part of the House of Works and Discovery Communications family of networks. And it's all centered around true crime shows. Yeah, it's taking
0: what is sometimes like a late night, you know, TV watching binge, and it's putting it on 24 hours a day. And it actually launched back in 2008 and 2009, it earned the tagline of Your guilty pleasure.
3: Yeah, and that with that tagline alone, you can see how the channel is already, in 2009, starting to cue into its more female audience. And now, it is the fastest-growing network for women, and the eighth most popular cable channel among women, 25 to 54. And don't worry, this is not going to be a major advertorial all episode long for investigation discovery, but... That is huge and notable growth. Yeah. And I mean, even just recently, it's, it's really jumped up. By
0: 2012, uh, investigation discovery or ID showed a 45% increase over 2011 in the 18 to 49 year old female viewer demographic, making it number four in daytime delivery. So it's not anymore just like creepy crime shows that you watch late at night with who's the guy. On um, Unsolved Mysteries that I watched as a child, Robert, no, that's the other one. Anyway, I watched it as a child and it scared me so much, but I couldn't stop watching it. I wasn't allowed to watch those kinds of shows. His face was creepy and the screen was creepy because there was like a fog machine all the time. Uh, yeah. So but anyway, it's taking that fear and just it's spanning
3: it over a whole day. Well, and the daytime delivery is also significant because that's why in the Time magazine headline, it asks the question, is true crime the new soap opera for women? Because we're watching it and not just at night, but also during the day. And for those of you who might not be familiar with I.D. shows, it includes things like On the Case with Paula Zahn, Final Witness, Wives with Knives and then it kind of goes on from there you get the general gist of it
0: yeah a lot of a lot of shows featuring women both in the criminal uh component and as the victim a lot of them having to do with uh Well, I'll just say that the stereotype of like shows about, you know, women going crazy and killing their husbands and stuff like that exists for a reason.
3: Yeah. But the question is, though, especially for those shows that aren't so much about the woman as the killer, the mm-hmm. crazed killer, but instead where the woman is often the victim mm-hmm. of a male perpetrator, why some people wonder Would we be so drawn to watching that, almost putting ourselves in the place of that woman who might be, you know, in the case of being stalked or in some horribly abusive relationship or who's who ends up being murdered and some scholars and also TV execs suspect that it has to do with the fact that with a lot of these true crime shows, it's not just a glamorization of violence that's going on, but the fact that it brings it full circle a lot of times to that perpetrator being arrested. Right. It's telling the
0: full story. You're getting that satisfying conclusion. And as Brad Bushman points out, he's a communications and psych professor at Ohio State University. It focuses as much on the consequences as the violent act itself. It's not just talking about how some some poor victim is being killed or assaulted. It is also focusing on actual justice. And he also talks about how women are increasingly comfortable with the genre itself, citing an uptick in, quote unquote, violent female role models in the media and Changing societal norms, he's saying that, uh, you know, it used to be socially unacceptable for women to engage in such behavior, both the committing violent crimes and even being interested in violence.
3: Yeah. And Jane Latman, who is Investigation Discovery's head of development, told Time magazine that she thinks That watching these shows offers a, quote unquote, cathartic journey for the female viewer that actually makes us feel safer in the end because it brings you face to face with those true crimes that happen, brings you face to face with these perpetrators, and then we see them arrested and brought to justice. And so she says it helps people kind of feel like, okay, I can go to bed and I'm not going to check my door ten times. And similarly, Sarah Kozozak, who's the head of production for ID, says that women might also like it because it makes them feel comforted that by comparison to all these crazy plot lines going on, Their families have to be normal. Yeah. I mean, you know, the worst my mother does
0: is drunk Facebook message me or like text me from the department store. And so I get a string of like 10 texts and everything's misspelled and 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 it's confusing. But she hasn't murdered anyone. There you go. That's good because, yeah, a lot of these. Yeah, they do uh, focus on family sagas. And so by comparison, my family is pretty tame, but uh, Henry Schleif, who became ID's president back in 2009, had previously run Court TV, which has a similar bent. And he said that what we learned there, and certainly what you can see here, is that women really love not just the crime and justice genre, but the storytelling and puzzle solving all around it. It feels very neat and tidy when you're watching one of those shows. I don't watch them because I will get sucked in. Um, I I have a friend who, like, obsessively goes home and just, like, turns on crime shows and watches them all night long. I would not be able to sleep, probably. But, yeah, I I tend not to want to get sucked in, but I I do agree that they are tied up very nicely. You feel a sense of order in the world when you you watch these narratives happen.
3: Yeah, and even though... Investigation Discovery is a relatively new network, um, and we've had shows in the past, things like Unsolved Mystery and Court TV uh, in a different kind of way. We ha- We've had true crime on TV for a while, but not in the 247 kind of format of I.D., but of course... This true crime genre and its appeal to women has been around a lot longer in the form of true crime books. Yeah, just like women are the biggest
0: audience for romance novels, we are also the largest buyers of mystery books and suspense thrillers. And as Jean Murley points out in her book, The Rise of True Crime, this genre, especially in the written form, has been around for a very long time. And she says that what looks like voyeurism or thrill-seeking may actually mask the gut-level human desire to comprehend the irrational.
3: Yeah, and if you are a fan of true crime, I do want to plug Jean Murley's book because it is fascinating to take a deeper look into this appeal and how it coincides with violence in society. Um So she talks about how modern true crime's earliest appearance is made in the detective magazine in the 1940s and 50s, although in the 19th century we had depictions that distance the killer through the language of monstrosity. We already have, you know, there are obviously like more violent texts that are going on before the 1940s and 50s, but the language of it evolves.
0: Right, it's the whole uh, scary person standing in the shadows, that whole distancing. It's, it's not your husband or your cousin who's coming and assaulting you or hurting you and your family. It's some crazy psychopathic other. And then this develops. And in the early 20th century, we have Edmund Pearsons, whose popular murder narratives used more of a self-mocking, almost sarcastic tone to his crime stories, which then gives way to the hard-boiled style of crime fiction, which found its way into the narratives of the 30s and 40s.
3: And with the hard-boiled style, which is really distinct to American crime writing, It brings those true crime aspects to the forefront. It gets gritty. There's graphic sex and violence. You often have sordid urban backgrounds and fast paced, slangy dialogue. Yeah. And then in
0: the 1960s, we start to see a very interesting parallel, two things going in opposite directions. Crime narratives around this time end up running counter to issues that are emerging in society, things like civil rights, feminism, because you have a genre, a narrative that is intensely gendered in its appeal, but very misogynist in its subject matter. But it also, on top of this, avoids any discussion of race and multiculturalism.
3: And in terms of what's meant by misogynist subject matter, it's continually the pattern of placing the woman as the victim and usually being drawn in by these men's charms. And so some uh, more feminist scholars, too, will, will look at true crime as being very misogynistic. Um, but it's also a reflection of and a response to a rise in violent and seemingly random crime that starts to escalate in the 60s. And then throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there's this enormous anxiety in American culture about a specific type of crime that was interpreted as an indicator of a widespread and irreversible decline in the care, compassion, and regard for others. It's like uh, as society was becoming almost more distance from itself, this coldness set in. And so we have the rise of terms like psychopath and sociopath to indicate the monster that first emerged in those earlier 19th century texts.
0: Yeah, it becomes... Uh more clear for readers to try to use that term, that othering term of a psychopath or sociopath to indicate, okay, well, this is the scary person. They obviously are not normal. They don't have a conscience, so they are bad. There's more of a black and white distinction there.
3: And simultaneously, you can see this evolution from true crime making sense of things like the Manson killings when you have uh, the, these books coming out in the 70s. And then in the 80s and 90s, it's as though true crime takes on almost an educational tack, where, as Gene Murley points out, all of a sudden, These consumers of true crime books are able to talk about details of forensics work, profiling and highly technical aspects of criminology. People can talk about blood spatter patterns and things like that. Yeah, but I mean, that's where
0: we get the terms crime porn. I mean, that that people talk about when they talk about these kinds of shows, because you start getting it moves from the serials and the books of the 30s and 40s and 50s into television shows featuring all of this stuff and it shows close-ups of bruises and blood splatter and people particularly women just can't get enough and and part of it is like we have this rise of a celebrity culture and so a lot of these sociopathic others you know these killers become their own sort of crazy celebrity figures
3: oh yeah i mean take manson Mm -hmm. alone it's uh, there are still people who are followers of manson because of the notoriety that he received even in 2013 there are still people out there
0: and we're about to delve into the appeal of true crime to women specifically but before we do let's take a quick break can i rant for a sec please please
2: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a National Association member, FDIC.
3: So clearly, the enduring popularity of true crime and its expansion from magazines to books to television really does prey a lot on societal fears, uh, maybe changes in the domestic sphere, all of the different societal changes that have been going on in the past 50 years. But what is it more specifically about this appeal To women, I mean, we've talked about ideas that maybe we like watching these shows because there's catharsis, we like to see justice, Mm -hmm. we like to feel more normal in our day to day by comparison. Um, but Laura Browder wrote a study called dystopian romance, true crime and the female reader. And what she did for it was really just talk to a number of true crime addicts, specifically true crime books.
0: Right. And she found that uh, it boiled down to the fact that many of these readers from all different types of backgrounds, they had all different types of professions, typically read these types of books to help themselves cope with this overarching patriarchal violence that they have encountered in the past and that they fear still in the present. Because we talked about how, you know, like the shows in particular, it, it ties it up all nice and tidy. And so you feel you feel better and more reassured that everything's going to be OK. Well, these women that she talked to are using these books kind of in the same way, reading about this terrible crime that happens, how it is solved, but also trying to get out of it something along the lines of what do I do in that situation? They're actually kind of seeking answers from it.
3: Yeah. And when you think about women's fear of violence, there is a counterintuitive aspect to it because research shows that we fear Becoming victims of violent crime more than men, even though excluding things like rape and sexual assault, men are more likely to be involved in violent crime. And on top of that, a 1994 study found that women are more turned off by thoughts of gory experiences, which adds to me another fascinating dimension to this true crime appeal, because in a way, it's it's this direct violation of a taboo because we're not supposed to, you know, be into violence, we are turned off by gore, we are afraid of violence. So why why would we why would we want to confront it in such a way? And so, yeah, there's this idea that it helps us get into the mind of who our potential attackers might be so that if that happens in the real world, then we'll know how to escape. Right, but she points
0: out that as you know, reassured as that might make you feel as the reader, you know, you still will never be able to get into the minds of random crazy killers because that's just what they're going to do. Random crazy killers are going to randomly, crazily kill people. And there's not much that, you know, you can do. It's like you're building a bomb shelter underneath your house and filling it with spam, that kind of thing.
3: But nevertheless, because it's presented as true crime, it is the reality of those situations happening that really pulls a lot of women in. There was one woman who told Browder, why would anyone read fiction when the reality is so much more extreme? And she talks about how uh, true crime books usually will involve photographs of the killer mm-hmm. and the victim, and sometimes both of them together, if they had been a couple, for instance. And uh, And there's also, speaking of... Uh, you know, the, the man killing the woman and if they had been a couple. There is a lot of sex that gets tied up with true crime as well. And for some readers in reading true crime, women vicariously experience kinky sex and violence and survive. And that mm-hmm. is also an appeal to some women. Yeah.
0: That's, that's actually a really interesting point. And, and she does, uh, link, she links these books and this genre. Not only to the taboo of looking at porn, but kind of, you know, where that romance novel that they picked up at the drugstore leaves off. So, you know, a lot of times this this true crime, these these terrible crimes that are written about happen among families or among couples. And so, you know, she she has this narrative of, OK, well, so you read the romance novel where the dominant man, you know, swoops in on his horse You know, Fabio comes in and he marries the princess or whatever. But then what happens after the domineering
3: man comes in? What happens when Fabio turns out to be Ted Bundy? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And she talks about how, in contrast to romance novels that culminate in marriage, true crime culminates in punishment. And that's the satisfaction gleaned of seeing these men whom the female protagonist might have been madly in love with at some point. You know, we see him brought to justice somehow, hopefully. Right. Oh, yeah. A lot of the women she talked to said they stopped reading when he got sentenced or whatever. Yeah. They don't care what happens. As long as he's behind bars, then that's fine. And in addition to sexual politics that are going on within these books, there obviously are, as we have implied, Plenty of gender politics to dissect as well. For instance, Browder notes how there was a boom in true crime that paralleled the rise of the women's movement in the 70s.
0: Yeah, and then she focuses a lot also on one true crime narrative in which the killer was a woman. And not only was the killer a woman, but she killed her children. So already that's two strikes against gender norms, and she focuses a lot on people's perceptions of that woman and how she was so much less sympathetic because of the fact that she wasn't playing gender right, basically. And other scholars point out that, you know, this style of book, this style of writing lets you be kind of an armchair killer. So whoever the killer is, particularly if it's female, like it lets us act out or, or imagine the things that we would never do in reality. But here in that particular case, for instance, when the killer is a killer because she has killed her children, all of a sudden that is so much less palatable to the reading audience.
3: And that's one reason why perhaps in a more recent study that came out in 2010, also looking at why women are drawn to true crime novels. Um, women consider true crime books more appealing when the victims are female, rather than if you are reading about a female murderer or sociopath or psychopath, whatever kind of path.
0: Yeah. And a lot of that uh, goes back to what we touched on as far as women being able to put themselves in that vulnerable woman's position and Gain tips. It's like being able to try to keep an eye out, learning what you can, learning those fitness relevant tips to keep your own self safe if you were ever to happen to get in a
3: situation like this. But at the same time, there is something uh, that scholars call the fear victimization paradox, which is that mismatch of our elevated rates of fear that something is terrible is going to happen to us, that we are going to be assaulted, murdered, etc., versus how men are far more likely to be the victims of violent crime. But still, at the same time, some caution that the escalated, true-crime, media-saturated environment that we are living in, where if you turn on the news, it's a lot of violent crime. If you turn on, you know, obviously, investigation, discovery, it's crime 247. And then if you're also reading these books, it's kind of everywhere that there's a problem with it almost turning it into fiction. There is a distancing Mm -hmm. effect when... When we look at the statistics, there are, you know, crimes that are happening specifically to women. And we also, too, have to talk about the fact that a lot of times, not just in true crime, but also in news stories that we hear about, uh, with women as victims, it's always white women for the most part. It's white middle class women, whereas crimes against women of color are severely underreported.
0: Yeah, I, I those are all incredible points because, yeah, when you're sitting there on your comfy couch with your popcorn or whatever, and you're watching a show about some grisly murder, it is easy, especially if you're watching a marathon of it. It is so easy to sink into that feeling of like, I'm safe. It's fine. You know, this is this is just entertainment. And so it completely distances us from actual statistics of sexual violence.
3: Yeah, and specifically, you know, one in five women is raped. Nearly twice that have experienced rape, physical violence or stalking. And sexual assault rates are higher for black women than white women, according to the Office on Violence Against Women and the National Institute of Justice. Specifically, the rate of intimate partner violence against black women is about twice that for white women with economic distress, hugely proportionate to violence. And instead, what we hear
0: from these shows are anecdotes and twisted lessons about violence and crime. All starring white women and the attackers are depicted as strangers. And don't worry, because forensics, science will solve everything. But when you look at the reality of these situations, that's just not the case. Typically, it is someone. The attacker is someone the woman knows intimately, whether it's a a family member or a close friend. And often those attackers are the, the attacks themselves are not reported and the attackers don't go to jail.
3: Yeah, and this is kind of a side note, but in 1935, Gertrude Stein actually wrote about this for the New York Tribune in an article called American Crimes and How They Matter. And she said there are only two kinds of crime that people care about, the crime hero and the crime mystery. All the other crimes everybody forgets as soon as they find out who did them. And if we fast forward that to today... It really is almost that blown up out of proportion because it's almost as though our crimes are becoming dehumanized Mm -hmm. and victims become characters and everything is so formulaic to the point to where it's always the same cast of characters looking the same. Yeah. And in the same socioeconomic class where that's a very unrealistic snapshot of what true crime is truly.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it it is, I don't want to take away anyone's television or anything, but it is too bad that a lot of the time shows like this networks like this, uh, they attract so many eyeballs and that means that eyeballs are not going to your local news. They're not going to your newspaper. So you're less aware almost. And, and you know, maybe you're not, but I, I worry that maybe people are less aware of the actual crime that's going on in their own community, the stuff that they really need to worry about, well, uh, versus things that are more abstract.
3: And I do have to, well, we do have to give props to Investigation Discovery for some self-awareness of this because they do promote educational things in terms of teaching women about crime risk and safety and domestic violence. But I do want to know from true crime fans out there what the appeal is and whether or not it makes you feel less safe. Because for me, if I want to watch a scary movie it's going to be something along the lines of a zombie (laughs) because I know that that's not going to happen to me. Right. And I can deal with that. But stranger danger kind of things, that sort of true crime terrifies me. Yeah. Because that's the stuff that gets in my head of, oh, no, there actually could be someone out there who wants to do horrible things to me. Yeah. So I'm I'm not in the demographic, the the I'm not in that female audience of true crime addiction. Me neither.
0: I I I if I'm gonna watch something about crime, I would rather watch honestly like Law and Order SBU. Yeah. Which is yeah. already about
3: horrific subject matter, but that is completely Completely fake. Exactly. There's that that distancing factor in there. But as was it Browder pointed out in her study, a lot of these women who were the most drawn into true crime had been victims of crime. Right. And I could totally see how watching it or reading it and reliving it in that sense could be therapeutic. Yeah. Give you a, a sense. Yeah. Give you a
0: sense of control over it try to find answers as to why it happens to other people. Yeah, and
3: camaraderie for victims who survive and are right. okay after that. So, I mean it's it's a it's a highly nuanced drama. It's not just violence and gore and that's it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff tied up with it when you start to untangle all of these different social elements, gender politics, sexual politics, which is one thing that the 2010 study that got a lot of press um, looking at why women are obsessed with true crime, it got some criticism because it completely neglected the sexual politics aspect. No one wants to say that, well, some women might like it in the same way that we like romance novels for the kinkier aspects of it, too. So, here's yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of taboos being violated <laughs> in true crime books. Yeah, so this is where we want to hear from you. Send
0: us an email at momstuffdiscovery.com, And we have some listener mail for you. But before we read it, we have a quick break.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard right snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly so visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert snagajob.com where america goes to hire
2: this episode is brought to you by pnc bank who believes some things in life should be boring like banking To start planning your trip, visit TNVacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. And now back to our letters.
3: So, Caroline, I have a letter here from a listener who would like to remain anonymous. So I am going to call this listener Bert. Bert is not his or her name. Uh, So... Bert writes, Hello, female identified human persons. Just listened to What's the Difference Between Gender and Sex and had a couple of things to share. When I first started working in healthcare 15 years ago, I encountered a baby born with ambiguous genitalia. I didn't really understand how this could be unclear until I saw the quote unquote down below bits. And it really was hard to call. This baby was born to very traditional parents from another culture, and they were very distraught. You mentioned picking names, but what about telling the rest of your family? Usually, it's a boy or it's a girl is the first thing the happy dad shouts when he comes into the waiting room. But in these cases, what can you say? In this particular case, there was a significant cultural pressure to produce a son or heir, so this ambiguous, quote-unquote, situation was just about intolerable. The baby was a preemie and stayed at the hospital for about a month, but had very few visitors, including only rare visits from mom and dad. The last I heard was that they were waiting for a DNA test, but as you know, that still doesn't guarantee the child will want to identify himself, herself, as the sex that best matches the DNA. I pray the parents didn't feel pressured to perform assignment surgery too early and that the child is now a healthy and happy teen. So thanks, Anonymous Bert, for sharing that experience. And if you have experiences to share with us... You know where to email us, momstuffdiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also find us on Facebook and message us there or follow us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. And we are also on Instagram. You're going to want to check out all of our Halloween snaps we got. You can follow us at stuffmomnevertoldyou. And we have some hilarious Halloween videos to check out as well on our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash stuffmomnevertoldyou. And don't forget to subscribe.